I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. Get up to 30% off wedding jewelry at bluenile.com and remember the joy of your wedding day forever. Blue Nile offers everything from diamond and lab-grown diamond wedding bands to classic pearls, earrings you can design yourself, even gorgeous sapphire pieces for your something blue. Whatever you choose, Blue Nile's pieces are all graded for excellence, for a lasting memento as brilliant as the love that inspired it. Right now, get up to 30% off at BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Hey guys, Jesse here. I am wrapping up my world tour of Canada. And this is the last episode of Omar Mualem's stint as my guest host. Huge thank you to him. You will hear him with another great episode in a moment. And while I'm talking to you, let me just thank everyone who made this tour so much fun. And that includes an army of people, technicians, performers who are on stage with me, the promoters. There are just too many names to name, but uh, I would be remiss if I did not shout out to all of the people who made this strange thing happen, including everybody who showed up for it. So thank you very much. I'll be back hosting Shortcuts on Thursday and back hosting the Monday show next Monday. Until then, here's Omar. cardinal rule in journalism is you don't accept any gifts from your sources. You don't accept meals, you don't accept vacations, and you certainly don't accept favors. Anything more than a coffee can compromise your integrity. But there's one section of the newspaper that wouldn't exist without breaking this rule. The travel section. There you'll find a disclosure with a common refrain. The writers, airfare, and accommodations were paid for by the blank tourism board. The sponsors were not allowed any editorial control. At least the disclaimer should be there. The fact is, few publications even bother with it. More to the point, how true can it be that they're maintaining editorial control when it's the tourism boards and PR firms largely in charge of the travel journalists' itinerary? Where they stay, where they eat, even the subjects they interview. The fact is, travel editors and writers have tight relationships with PR, something closely resembling celebrity journalism. And they must walk a fine line between obligation and independence. You push back too hard and they might just threaten to blacklist you. It's never quite clear who's in control. I've done my fair share of travel writing to far and expensive places, and this is all I've ever known. But I've learned it wasn't always so. Publishers used to go to great lengths to keep their independence. They invested in the airfare, foot the restaurant bills, even accepting a media rate discount at a hotel was taboo. The gold standard was set by Condé Nast Traveler in 1987 under the banner Truth in Travel, and other series publishers followed suit. But four years ago, Condé Nast, like most other media, found their Truth in Travel guidelines too restrictive. There are a few holdouts in the United States, but as my guests will tell you today, in Canada's travel sections, there is almost no such thing as not a free lunch. 
I first met Bird Archer on a plane to the Arctic one August. He was coming in from some faraway place because although he lives in Toronto, he actually had only spent a handful of days there that year. The rest of the time, he spends it elsewhere, filing stories for travel sections in the Globe, the Star, Post Media, and just about everywhere else in this country. He recently started teaching the University of Toronto's first ever practice in ethics of travel writing class. And as you'll learn in our interview, the definitions of both are fast changing. Somehow travel writers have to maintain their ethics and convince the tourism industry that they need journalists more than journalists need them. Bird Archer insists it's still possible, and he'll explain how in a minute. This episode of Canada Land is brought to you by Jerome Laflamme, Aaron Bradford, Alexandra Bauer, Aaron Birkenbergs, Alexandre Delongchamp, Brian Laframboise, Gordon Erskine, and Kyra McLeod. Kyra, why did you decide to be awesome? I support Canadaland because Jesse and his Canadaland staffers don't hold back from asking the tough questions and from addressing their own bias. Jesse takes the time to reflect on criticism he receives, which makes for a much richer discussion. And this episode is brought to you by our founding sponsor, FreshBooks. FreshBooks is quite an incredible Canadian company. They found something that the world needed, accounting software, billing software for freelancers and small businesses. And they built first a small business and then kind of a huge business out of it. And they kept it here in Canada. I have seen their offices. I have never seen anything like this in Canada. They are contributing to building a tech sector in this country. And yet they have kept the mentality of a small, scrappy startup. They were not afraid to completely reinvent their own product. The all-new FreshBooks is a complete head-to-toe redesign that makes sending invoices and bills, tracking your expenses, tracking your time, getting a sense of what's coming in and what's going out, getting paid quicker, all of that is easier than ever with the all-new FreshBooks. This is a world-class solution to a problem that a lot of people have, and it is a solution made in Canada, and millions of people use this. You can use it too for free for 30 days. You don't need to give them a credit card. Try it out. Go to freshbooks.com slash CanadaLand, and when you do decide to become a customer, tell them that CanadaLand sent you, and you will be doing this show a favor. Thank you, FreshBooks. Bert, thanks for joining CanadaLand. Happy to be here. So you must get asked, as often as I do, how do I get free trips around the world? Are your students disappointed to learn that your class is largely an ethics class? They're not, actually. I was wondering. It's the first time this course has been offered this way and the first time I've taught it. And I was really curious about how the ethics thing would go over. I was wondering if all the students would just be like, okay, how, how do I get to Singapore for free? And it, it, it turns out that a lot of the questions are about the ethical repercussions of, of what they're hoping to do uh, as travel writers. And so, so no, it's, uh, it's, it's actually a, a point of fascination because I think it's not something that, that people give a lot of thought to. So how does it work for you? Because there are fam trips or familiarization trips where groups of journalists are sent at the same time on the same junket, but you don't do that. You say you largely are in control of where you go, how and when you get there. Are you pitching stories on a case-by-case basis, or are you doing the research and then pitching the story? 
It works differently every time. Sometimes an editor will come to me with an assignment uh, that I haven't thought of. I uh, go to Taiwan to um, uh, to write about vegetarian food, as I, I just did for En Route. Or, you know, some editor will, will send me places. That's one way. And then either they've arranged everything for me, or then I have to go and arrange things uh, myself. Sometimes I'll come up with an idea. I'll be reading. I'll be uh, thinking uh, and say, yo, you know, uh, there's, a, there's a new whiskey, home distilled whiskey movement in Ireland. That might make a cool thing. Everyone knows about Irish whiskey but no one knows that Irish whiskey, for the large part, hasn't been Irish for decades. So uh, go there and try all the Irish whiskey and talk to all the distillers. And then I'll either, when I come up with my own idea, what I'll do is I'll either pitch it to a, a paper or magazine first, see if they're interested, and then take the trip, or I will start arranging the trip see if it's possible and then sort of sort of go back and forth seeing how possible it is you know how interested a publication is sometimes they're like a little interested but aren't willing to commit and then that's that's how it goes when you say arranging the trip reading between the lines you're you're working with the airliners you're working with tourism boards and they're actually subsidizing this trip yeah it, there was a time i understand before i was a journalist uh, that publications made enough money to uh, pay for their uh, journalists to, to go places, to pay for their freelance journalists to go places. But in the 10 years that you've been doing In the this, 10 years I've been doing it, this has never been the case. And so it relies on PR firms and on tourist boards and on airlines and on hotels and tour companies to fund these things. When you're approaching these companies, how are you managing their expectations of what they can and can't get in return? And, and how do you just convince them you're the one in charge? Well, that's the very nub of, of the ethical quandary of, of travel journalism, that one of the primary journalistic rules of journalistic ethics generally for any kind of journalism is don't accept money, favors, or any form of emoluments from the people uh, who are the subject of your piece. And that you have to do that as step number one. Uh, in order to be a travel journalist. And so I think people who think about it at all uh, will tend to think, well, that just makes you an ethical non-starter as a travel writer. You're a fluff writer. You're an advertorial writer. Do what you do. Make a living however you have to, but you're not a journalist. I don't think that's the case. You do have to start out by doing that. Uh, but the way I do it when I approach a travel board, a, a ministry of tourism, an airline, is I'll say what I'm interested in doing. I'll say who I work for generally. Uh, I write for the Post, and I write for The Globe, and I write for et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And then I'll say, here's what I need from you. I need to get to Frankfurt in order to go here to do this. This is what my story idea is. I'd love for you to help me with that. And given the, the rates of pay that these publications have for these travel pieces, I actually can't pay anything for airfare. Otherwise, it would eat up my entire story. And uh, some. And some. Oh, of course, yeah. Even they used to have things called media rates when publications were paying for things. Uh, these sorts of companies would give publications media rates. So instead of a $1,000 airfare, you'd pay $200. And so that would allow the publications to seem like they weren't taking something for free and yet still be able to come, on, come in under budget. So what I do in these, in these instances when I'm making these, uh, these appeals to these people is I'll always include a paragraph that's a paraphrase of, I can't guarantee coverage, but this is what I do for a living. It's in my interest to find a story but I'm not going to run a story that my reader's not interested in or not in their best interest. So that's what, but I think I can do that, but I can't guarantee anything. If you're okay with these terms, then we can move forward. If you're not, I'm sorry. You've taken probably over a hundred trips mm -hmm. in your 10 years. Have you ever not written about a destination? Yes, I have. Well, there, there've been a few that I haven't written about. Some I haven't gotten around to writing about yet, but there are some that I, I know I won't write about. 
What are they? There is one trip I took to Curaçao, for example, that was put together by a PR firm that represented Curaçao in the North American market. Uh, Curaçao is an island part of the Netherlands that is just a, a few kilometers off the coast of Venezuela in the, the very bottom of the Caribbean. It was one of the last press trips, fam trips that you, des- you described that I ever took. And the reason was that it really was the worst of those sorts of things. Those things are never good. I think you've been on a couple yourself. There's a body, either it's a, it's a governmental body or a PR firm or someone with a vested interest in having you cover their client in a certain way will take you around. And this is very much what happened here. It became clear very early on that the, uh, the PR firm was representing the, the Tourist Bureau of Curaçao, and the Tourist Bureau of Curaçao was made up of business members who funded the Tourist Board. And so we were taken to visit the members who funded this body, and who in turn, which in turn had funded this trip for, say, 10 journalists from around the world. And so in the course of this trip, I would see various things that I thought, okay, well, that's interesting. I might be able to hook a story on that or that. That's kind of cool. There's, there's a language people speak in Curaçao that I'd never heard of. It's a, a Creole uh, a makeup of, of three or four European languages. We passed by this great roadside restaurant that's exactly the kind of thing that had you know, Curaçao dishes I'd never heard of before. From the names of them, I couldn't tell what they were. I thought, okay, this, this is a, could be a perfect opener for, you know, I'd eaten at other places. It could be the perfect opener for food in Curaçao. And, and food is such a huge part of travel. I thought that'd be great. Color. People, the talking, story you want to write is exactly. just passing you by. Uh, and we'd actually stop there so someone could go to the bathroom. And I said, Oh, can I just like get something to eat and maybe talk to a couple people here? I'll be like 15 minutes. Uh, and they said, No, we got a schedule. And so we hopped back in the van and went to some completely banal place with some trees that had been bent over by the wind. Uh, a mall that had recently opened was one of their clients. And we went there twice to eat. Uh, you know, went to a burger place. Burger, burgers in Curacao. Not a lot there. Wasn't even a great burger. So that's what you've got to do is you've got to take the power away from them. You've got to maintain your journalistic ethics, your sense of you're responsible to your reader, not, you know, you're not responsible to the PR firm. You're not responsible to the destination. You're not responsible to a a tourist board. Uh, You're responsible to the readers. You're asking them to spend maybe $10,000, $5,000, $15,000 to go on this trip. You don't want to just tell them what you've been told to tell them. Couldn't there possibly be repercussions for that? I mean, have you ever been threatened to be blacklisted? Oh, yeah, this very, this very PR firm threatened to blacklist me. Uh, they introduced this concept I'd never heard of before. They said, all we PR people, uh, we keep a black book and we put writers' names in them. And if your name goes down, you're never going to get another trip again. Your career is over. So you'd better write a story and you better write the story that we want you to write. You know, I've been doing it for a while. I've, always, I've been a journalist for 15 years before I started writing about travel. You encountered no black books. And and it sounded unlikely, but I thought, huh, PR, who knows? But I said, okay, go ahead. But uh, I don't care. I never got any repercussions. There, there were no, I never had an indication. I asked a couple of other PR people I know, have you heard of some black book that you guys all put names down in? And they said no. I'm still, the jury's out on whether this black book still <laughs> exists or not. But um, uh, but at least, and if I was put on it, it it doesn't have any repercussions. Uh, you know, I, it's it's maybe more familiar to the general public in the in the realm of celebrity journalism that PR is this powerhouse. They're the ones who control access to the celebrities, and the journalists have to kowtow to them in order to get. You know, if you don't give good coverage to this B-list star, you're never going to get to talk to this A-list star that you need to talk to for your circulation. And so they they have the reins of control. And I think the the PR people in in travel try and operate the same way. 
and they have these little bags of goodies, which are lovely goodies. They're these free trips all over the world. Stay at five-star hotels and and let's go horseback riding on the beach, et cetera, et cetera. And uh, all you have to do is write exactly what you tell you to write. And what I found early on was that you can say, okay, I, you know, I'll, I'll write about uh, what I think I should write about. How's, how's that? 75% of the time they say yes. And sometimes they get mad at me like this PR firm did. I've, I've had several PR people get very mad at me, send me very clip messages, either that coverage hasn't happened in a timely fashion as far as they're concerned or for any number of reasons or, or, or you know, things weren't written the way they thought or they thought we were gonna, I was going to cover this thing and I, didn't, I covered that thing because they have clients. I don't care about who their clients are, frankly. And uh, they get mad at me. There's a ton of PR firms, so you don't have to worry about that. But also the nature of PR is the very moment that they figure you can do something for them they're friendly again. Uh, they'll call up and say, hi, it's been a while, but um, there's this new hotel opening in Puerto Vallarta that we thought you'd really be interested in. But you must sometimes feel feel bad about it. I mean, if you go into a restaurant in place and they're they're treating you well, I mean, I've, I've been on these trips, you're treated extremely well. You know, I once took my wife to a hotel in Beirut and when we walked in, there were rose petals strewn from the doorway all the way to the bed. It was a beautiful gesture for us. But I also know that this is not something that non-journalists get. But, you know, not writing about that, if I had if I had left that hotel out of my article, luckily it was a great hotel, but had I left it out, I would have felt awful. This is really important. And it's something that PR, it's the fuel uh, behind this kind of PR. Uh, they run off gratitude. And they are really high on giving you the idea that this trip that they put together is worth thousands of dollars. And they do everything they can, they and their clients, to do things like, like you know, ridiculous over-the-top things like strewing rose petals and, and champagne in your room and, and having a, a sign with your name on it. I once, the most extreme one I ever had was I went into a hotel and they, uh, there, there was a little cake uh, waiting for me in the hotel with the um, logos of every publication I'd ever written for uh, rendered in sugar on the cake and said, you know, welcome, Bird Archer. Okay, so that is a little extreme, but... Um... But the whole intent is to make you feel good, to make you feel gratitude, to make you feel like they're your buddies, that they're doing something for you, so you have to do something for them. One of the things I tell my students in the course at U of T is that you've got to learn about the travel industry if you're going to write about travel. It's not just about beaches and, and top 10 places to get Mai Tais in, in Singapore. It is about how does the aviation industry work? How do hotels work? Uh, how does the car rental business work? All these sorts of things. And one of the things you learn very quickly when you start looking into these things, when you look into organizations like IATA, the International Air Transport Association, which is the professional association for or the industry association for airlines, is that you, you start learning about things like marginal costs. Like how much does it cost an airline to have you in a seat? How much is your weight costing them in jet fuel to get you from one place to another. So the ticket may cost $2,000. And if you, if you were, had to buy it, it would be $2,000. But how much is the airline actually giving you if they're giving you something? And so the best standard number I was able to, it, it varies greatly from kind of air, airplanes to, to how far you're going to, you know, et cetera, et cetera, obviously on your own weight. But the industry came out with an average in, in 2014. They said that it costs 3.3 liters of jet fuel to transport the average passenger 100 kilometers. So from there, you can use that as a, and the, and the price of jet fuel goes up and down all the time. Uh, at the moment, it's about 50 cents a liter. And so flying me from Toronto to London, 5,700 kilometers uh, is about $90. So that's what they're giving me. They're giving me $90. 
with some overhead with staffing and other things, but that maybe $95. Th- this all goes contrary to that Condé Nast philosophy, truth in travel, that the travel journalists should pay exactly what the the common traveler would pay. Is there is there something lost when we start to think about it in, in these overhead numbers or, or when we just ignore them completely and just take the full free trip, take the free accommodations, the free meals? Well, yeah, this is this is how this is one of the reasons that I think travel journalists should both be seen as travel journalists, but also think of themselves as journalists and not people who are getting great travel trips for free and and providing a service to PR companies or to tourist bureaus is that, yeah, you can lose sight of uh, this trip cost, would have cost me $28,000. You can lose sight of that and just say, oh, it's great. You know, this is what happened with Dubai. Dubai were masterful in their cajoling of the world's travel writers to convince the world that Dubai was a great place to go to about 15 years ago when they decided to, you know, their oil reserves were running out. They needed to find a replacement. They just flew in all the world's travel writers. They picked them up at the airports with Bentleys. They put them in seven-star hotels. They gave them personal butlers. They had chefs fly in to create special meals. And the stories reflected it. Um, The stories that Dubai is unlike any place you've ever been. The degree of luxury is extraordinary. And and they'd all have these great stories because Dubai tourism and the PR firms that represented them created these great stories that, that these writers felt they couldn't ignore. Like there's such extraordinary experiences, they had to write about them. But you have to sort of ignore that. That's you being bribed. And that's a fairly straightforward thing to to turn away and to, to sort of filter out. So I think, yeah. And as it were, you went to Dubai and mm-hmm. the story you wanted to write was that Dubai is the worst place on earth. Did That's you have Did thing. you have a hard time selling that one? That Brian? is a tough thing. Uh, travel sections are about places you want to go to, not about places you don't want to go to. Now, I happen to think that people would be greatly entertained by stories about how horrible a place can be and this awful experience you had and how everything went wrong. I think those can be entertaining, good, and even useful and practical stories. But for the most part, what happens in these travel sections is that they they think a lot like many book sections and many other sections these days think is that, uh, hey, there's this uh, place that you weren't thinking of going to anyway. Don't go. They think that kind of story is a waste of space. They have limited space. All these print spaces certainly are shrinking. And so they figure like, okay, that just don't write about. Um, Or can you find something like, okay, maybe the whole place is kind of bad, but did you have like some little thing that went right that you can write about? So uh, with Dubai, nothing went right. It was just awful and engineered to be awful. Like it wasn't just like I had a bad experience, but the people who put Dubai tourism together put it together in order to be awful. I came away with a distinct impression that the Dubai tourism people would much prefer you to stay home and just wire them the money. Uh, <laughs> no, don't come here at all. Don't go up our building. Don't don't go to the biggest mall. Just stay home. Send us your 7,500 bucks and and we'll call it a day. You mentioned shrinking ad revenues in, in newspapers and magazines and therefore shrinking pages is one of the forces that is sort of loosening the rules and, and why there are really only a couple of, of holdouts in the United States, at least, that are still doing this. New York Times, Wall Street Journal, Washington Post. Holdouts being either paying for or reimbursing you on Reimbursing trips. the writers, yeah. yes. Mm-hmm. So, you know... Dwindling advertising, that's one force. But there's another thing at work, and that's the rise of social media influencers. There are Instagram and YouTube and Snapchat stars. Many of them aren't even paid for the work that they do, though some are. But they create really impressive content. And PR firms know this, tourism boards know this, and they're starting to go straight to them. Mm-hmm. Are they cutting into your trade? And, and how is how is what they do different from what you're doing? They don't cut into my trade. And what they're doing is the opposite of what I'm doing. And the last person to 
want to deprive someone of whatever livelihood they've been able to come up with. But I think that inherently these influencers and travel bloggers who do it this way, obviously a travel blog is just a, a medium and people can behave any way they want in a medium. But for the most part, the ones that succeed and the ones whose names you know or, or who you follow on Instagram are working for the destinations and the PR firms, not for you, the reader. And that is the opposite of journalism. Uh, journalism, the final concern should be the reader. It should be uh, giving you information, going behind something, giving you being as transparent as you can about how things work, about how the world works. And what uh, influencers are doing is funding extraordinary lifestyles on the backs of their followers. And that is, yeah, it's reprehensible. There is one other thing that they they can't do. They they can't go to these unconventional places that just simply don't have the marketing budget. You've been to places like Bulgaria and Kazakhstan. Who is paying for you to go there when they don't have uh, robust tourism boards that are uh, trying to allure travel journalists from around the world? Yeah, it's extraordinary. And as I said, every trip gets put together in some different way. Sometimes it's a tourist board that just says, uh, we want you to come to Macedonia. Uh, we're trying to promote tourism here. We'll show you some things. We'll show you whatever you want to see, but we just want you to come so to improve the possibility that you may cover us in your market in Canada, whatever. And those are the best uh, because they're not selling anything in particular except the destination itself. Some have specific clients. You know, I've, I've had things paid for by airlines and I've had things paid for by hotels and I've had things paid for by tour groups. And, and you've all these... also had things paid for just by and, individuals. And with, with Bulgaria was the first time this happened. It hasn't happened much. It's happened twice and both with Bulgaria. Bulgaria, it, they had just joined the EU and I pitched a story. I was going to do either Bulgaria or Romania because they both joined the EU at the same time. And so it's kind of an opening up. Uh, you know, people used to go to these places. Uh, Sofia and Bucharest used to be on the on the grand tours. And they, you know, because of the Iron Curtain for so long, they'd been out of our frame of reference. And so I figured this would make a good story. So I get in touch with the Bulgarian embassy as like, I don't know who to get in touch with. I say, I'd like to to go and and, uh, and look into the possibility of a travel story about Bulgaria somehow. They're very enthusiastic, the Bulgarians. Okay, I, I don't know. We haven't done this before. I don't know, but I'll get back to you. And so we go back and forth a few times. And he said, okay, uh, this didn't work. I, I, I got back to my government and there's no money for this, but I'm not going to, to give up. And so then I get a call saying, okay, can you meet this guy uh, at his golf club? And I say, oh, okay, sure. Uh, he says he's interested in, in your trip. And so I go to this golf club and it turns out, I think he owned the golf club and he was this Bulgarian Canadian and uh, his name was Kanif. He, he was um, a developer of uh, suburban homes in, in the Toronto and GTA area. And he, he'd left Bulgaria decades ago, uh, but had been approached as, uh, you know, as, a, as an upstanding Bulgarian Canadian and like, could you help out the motherland? And so he wanted to interview me. Essentially, wanted to meet me. Am I a good guy? Am I going to go and like diss his his uh, his country? If uh, and were, were you also interviewing? And I was interviewing him as well because I was. It quickly became clear that the whole deal was that he was just going to cut a check to the Bulgarian consulate to pay for my trip. That was very odd. And so he was interviewing me. That was the purpose of the meeting. But I was interviewing him as well, covertly anyway, to see like, do you want me to cover a company of yours? Do you want me to cover something from your friends? Your I didn't ask him those sorts or... of questions, but hometown. Like I asked him all these things. You know, who does he still know there? What you know to find out? He had no interest in that. He just wanted to get the measure of me, and I guess he liked the measure of me, and so he said, "Good." 
And he went off on his way. I went off on my way. And the next day, I got a call from the consulate saying, uh, so when would you like to go? Awesome. Um, and so I went. This is highly irregular. And I can, I can hear uh, journalists in other sections of the paper going, oh, as they're listening to this. But the way I see it is I made sure that there were no strings attached to this money. And there wouldn't have been any stories in the travel section about Bulgaria if this hadn't happened. The that, paper that's the alternative. Yeah, the alternative is silence. And especially with regard to places like Bulgaria, like Haiti, like Kazakhstan, like, like Northern Ireland even. I think one of the great values of the travel section is for so many parts of the world, we only in this part of the world hear about them in the news sections when something blows up, when there is a revolution, when there is cholera, when there's something bad going on. And so as soon as the bad stuff stops, we stop hearing about it and then years can go by. But then someone brings up Northern Ireland and you say, oh, yeah, that uh, how, how are things there? Is Belfast safe? You know, the, the Good Friday Agreement was, was signed in 1999. There's been peace there since 1999. Uh, that's a long time. That's going on 20 years now. But if there's nothing, you know, the news sections aren't about saying nice things like who's that's boring that's what the travel sections are for so i think what one of the great sort of cultural roles uh, uh, even socio-political roles that a travel section can play is reminding people like hey remember you know there was an earthquake in haiti it was awful but look at haiti now look it's got beaches look it's got great food you may want to actually come here spend some of your tourism dollars here instead of writing a check and saying those poor haitians oh go there employ a haitian to bring you a drink uh, you know, pay someone to uh, to stay in their hotel, a much more equitable way of of helping and you get a vacation out of it. Do you ever run the risk, though, of accepting an assignment that is subsidized by governments committing human rights abuses? A few years ago, Canada Land ran a story about a Vancouver Sun travel article called Tourism Government Spending boost Tibet's living standard. And it described overwhelmingly, quote, overwhelmingly content citizens and said the Dalai Lama was out of touch with them. Scroll to the bottom and there's a funny little disclaimer. The travel in China and most accommodations in Tibet were provided by the Chinese government. This might be an extreme example, but the Qatari government has a travel budget and there's no shortage of Cuban travel articles. Do you ever make an effort to avoid these places? Okay, so... Context is good. The uh, United States also has a big travel budget and um, Guantanamo, prison population, police, Black Lives Matter. There are human rights abuses in a lot of places. And I think that this is where transparency comes into play and where your sense of yourself as a journalist comes into play. And so I think that, uh, yeah, I mean, one of the reasons Haiti has had as many problems as it's had is it has, has had crappy governments. It's not just about earthquakes and, you know, poverty doesn't come out of nowhere. And Kazakhstan has, a, has an authoritarian ruler that's, that's been the, the ruler since the Soviet, since it was a, a Soviet republic. So, yeah, you've you got to be aware of those things and not whitewash them. There was another famous case of, of a, an influencer, a, a travel blogger, an Instagrammer who went to North Korea and put together this YouTube video, this lyrical, lovely YouTube video of how beautiful North Korea is and the beaches and the surfing and you can do this and you can do that and the people are so happy and people just piled on him saying, so you know about North Korea, right? <laughs> uh, and uh, and his, his defense was, but I just wanted to like point out the good things. And I think, yeah, travel sections and travel media in general is about saying how you can have fun there. But I think, you know, if you're just a reasonable human being and trained journalists tend to be, I know there's a lot of prejudice against them, but they tend to be able to keep these things in mind as they go. 
And I think as long as you keep a sense of, of journalistic ethics, as long as you keep a sense that you are working for your readers and that anyone who's paying you is obviously trying to influence you and be aware of that. And be aware that if the government, if an authoritarian government is paying for you to go there, they probably want a certain kind of story. That doesn't mean you have to write that kind of story. You have to do some, some uh, introspection and some self-criticism about, do I think this is great because they just gave me a bunch of champagne? Uh, do I think it's great because they didn't let me go turn left at this street and they, uh, they, they were trying to direct my attention to this big shiny new building and not those, those little hovels over there? You've got to be a responsible professional person with some sense of ethics and, and in some instances, civilian morals. You're also an advocate for covering the indigenous context of places you go mm-hmm. and promoting, I guess, what, what you can call indigenous tourism. When, when I first met you on an Arctic Canada cruise from Nunavik to Nunavut to Greenland, we all came back, us, uh, most of us journalists who were on board, we came back with, you know, a story about an Arctic cruise. But the story that you wrote for the National Post, uh, you wrote, Canada has a tourism problem that can only be fixed by embracing indigenous culture. We are not selling what tourists are buying, what Canada has that the rest of the world does not. Tell me about this. Why is this important to you? Uh, I think it's important in any number of ways. And it's one of these, one of the things that makes me excited about travel writing. You know, I started travel writing as a, as a, as a lark. I was doing other kinds of journalism and like, hey, free trip to the Caribbean in the winter. Sure. It's only when I started thinking about the, the power that travel writing can have and the travel can have in the world and does have in the world, even if we don't realize it, that I started getting really interested in it as a, as a profoundly interesting and important realm of, of media and culture. And indigenous tourism in Canada is a, is a prime example of that. We have a, a big problem. I mean, we're getting clearer and clearer in Canada on our, on our various race, uh, racial problems and problems with racism. One that we've been aware of for a long time is our problem with our relations with uh, settler relations with, with indigenous peoples. One big thing that's happening in Canada right now is the indigenous tourism industry. There are pe- indigenous people who are setting up businesses, who are getting employed as guides, who are artists, craftspeople, all sorts of things that, that can make livings off of tourists. The rest of the world, when it thinks of Canada, they don't, well, now they kind of think of Justin Trudeau and his butt. But what we're, what they, a lot of people in Japan and in Germany, lots of parts of Europe and Asia, they think about the indigenous people in Canada. That's what we've got that other parts of the world don't have. The States has it too, Central and South America do. There are lots of indigenous peoples all around the world, but it's one of the things that we have. And, uh, you know, talk to a German about what they're interested in Canada, and that's going to be the first or second thing they, they say. And it's not part of our tourism strategy as a as as a country and it's a way to to support and foster self-sustaining autonomous business initiatives in the aboriginal community by just stepping out of the way like we don't have to like oh help our poor brothers and sisters we just like the whole world is interested in you guys how about we just step back and let you give your tours, tell your stories, and serve people your food, and let them know that this is fascinating stuff. How do you avoid exoticizing them, though? I mean, the reason that German people are so interested in Canada's indigenous people is because in Germany, just about, you know, just about every person grew up on on these children's books about cowboys and Indians, and it's cr- created this they weren't great actually fascination. They, they were, they were uh, adult novels by Karl May. Right. They were the typical cowboy and Indian stories, except in Germany for Karl May, who had never been, as far as I know, to North America and had never met an indigenous right. person. He flipped the American standard for the narrative, and the Indians were the good guys. And the cowboys were the bad guys. Uh, there's a great sympathy and a great interest in these very romanticized, completely 
fictive versions of indigenous people. And but what I, so that's what brings them here. But I think what's great is when they see actual people, the people who who were the brave warriors, uh, bare chested with feathers and and doing noble things uh, across the land, and they see actual human beings living actual lives is not historical. You know, they used to be here. They're still here. They're still doing things. And what they're doing is is different from what people do in Europe. It's what different from what European and, and other non-Indigenous Canadians do. They live their lives differently. And it, it it's interesting from a tourist point of view. It's just like something you can go home and tell stories about. But it broadens your horizons about how people can live and how different people see the world differently, their relationship to their history, their relationship to their children, their relationship to food, all these things. What are the other ethics you think should be practiced as far as parachuting in and photographing people, telling others stories. How can it go wrong? It can go wrong so many ways. And all you have to do is is start reading travel blogs or or travel sections to see ways that it that has gone wrong. There are certain just tropes that I think are problematic. I think that you often, in people's blogs, Instagram, less than in, in print travel sections, you see pictures of white men and white women with their arms around brown children. Images are powerful things. And when you see this again and again and again, the message they convey is uh, not only friendliness, but it is proprietorial white savior kinds of images that ideas that you get that that were, especially if it's volunteerism or you're going somewhere to help. And I use quotation marks around help these people is that you're, you're doing the same thing the missionaries are doing. You're doing uh, we're doing, you know, 150 years ago. You're you're thinking that, you know, what's best for them and you're going in and best intentions in the world. These are good people, but I would maintain they're good people often doing bad things. And so taking those sorts of pictures, just taking pictures of children. I mean, you don't do that here without getting their parents' permission. Whereas uh, in other parts of the world, oh, the children are just running all around and they're so friendly and they came up and I asked them if I could take the picture and they said, yes, take my picture, take my picture. And so I did. And then I put it on Instagram when I have 250,000 followers and you, you wouldn't do that. You wouldn't want anyone doing it to your own kids. Well, not, not just Instagram, but run it in a newspaper. Yeah. I mean, we've we've all seen, you know, we've all seen these pictures in newspapers and magazines that the the travel writer or the photographer took themselves, that in subtle ways sort of exoticize the people. That's a real problem because, uh, from a certain point of view, the entire purpose of a travel section is to exoticize other places to make them seem alluring for us to go there. It's not like it's at home. If it was like at home, why are you spending thousands of dollars to get on a plane to come here? Look how exotic it is. Look at the spires of Bangkok. Look at the the Everglades uh, of of Florida. Look at all these things. And I think what, once again, uh, if you're trying to be responsible, as I hope all travel writers are, is to temper that instinct to exoticize, realizing that one, uh, that these are people who are living quotidian lives like you in different circumstances. And two, who are you writing for? Increasingly, we're writing for a global audience. But even if you're not, uh, have a, if you don't have a million followers on Instagram, even if you're writing for the Toronto Star or the Globe and Mail, look who lives in Toronto. Look who lives in Canada. Thailand may be exotic for the writer. Is it exotic for the Thai Canadians? No. And do they appreciate being exoticized? And like, there's a pernicious form of racism that is born of condescending compliments. And I think we have to be as aware of that uh, as we are of the the more hateful kind that, that's more obvious, that if we just think, oh, you people are so great at that little thing that you do, that and is not as important as the things I do, of course, but it's so great that you're doing it. No, these are all, you know, fully developed cultures, many of them much more fully developed than the ones that the writer came from. And uh, you have to do some work and you have to treat people like people and not think of people in foreign places as foreigners, but as you know, people you're visiting. Bert, thanks for joining Canada Land. My pleasure. 
That's your Canada Land Show this week. I hope you enjoyed it. You can email me at omar at canadalandshow.com. Our website is canadalandshow.com. Our crowdfunding site is patreon.com slash canadaland. We are on Twitter at canadaland, and you can follow me at omar underscore A-O-K. This is my last Canada Land Show. Jesse's back next week, and I'd like to thank him for letting me take his seat. I hope you've enjoyed the last month with me. I've had a great time. Commons drops a new episode Tuesday, and The Imposter is out on Wednesday, and Shortcuts is out on Thursday. This episode of Candleland was produced by Russell Gregg with help from Amelia Gregg. If you like what we do, please support us. In France, in the 13th century, a teenager ascends the throne. He seems calm, collected, and as it happens, drop dead gorgeous. But looks can be deceiving, and no one is ready for the death, destruction, and chaos that lie ahead. Step inside the reign of one of the Middle Ages' most cold-blooded rulers on This Is History Presents The Iron King. Available wherever you get your podcasts. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. This is Roundabout Season 2, and we're back to share more stories from the road and the memories made along the way. We're talking rest stops. If we're stopping to get gas, you will be timed. (laughs) (laughs) You will be right. (laughs) Misguided plans. I grew up in the city, so I have, like, you know, a healthy fear of real extreme darkness. (laughs) This was, like, wilderness. A lot of laughs. Y'all weird, but you, yeah, you, you were different. Like, you were real different, bro. I can't really put my finger on it. And so much more. Just goes to show that unexpected yeah. things sometimes are the best when it comes to a road trip. Roundabout Season 2, presented by Nissan, is live now with new episodes rolling out every Thursday. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com.